Okay, so, you know how they say opposites attract? Not so much. Let's talk about my three favorite Hollywood best friends, Vincent Price, Peter Cushing, and Christopher Lee. Vincent, Peter, and Christopher were tall, suave, skeletal horror actors who spent four decades killing each other on screen. Sometimes Christopher murdered Vincent with an ax. Sometimes Peter tricked Christopher into a deadly swamp. Once, Vincent let Peter get eaten by spiders so he could steal his wife. They'd ruin scenes by laughing at each other's deaths. Finally, Vincent, Peter, and Christopher did their first movie as a trio, 1985's House of the Long Shadows. Like the BFFs they were, they agreed it was kinda terrible. These legendary monsters had one more thing in common. Peter Cushing was born on May 26th. Vincent Price and Christopher Lee were born hours later on May 27th. So hoist a goblet of blood red wine and wish these fatal friends a happy birthday. Hello, I am Amy Nicholson, Chief Film Critic for MTV News, and this is Skillset, the podcast where every guest is an expert, and every week they teach you and me a new way to look at the movies. Like our first guests, voice actors James Arnold Taylor and David Kay on the difference between voicing video games versus movies. Also ahead, actor Ethan Hawke reveals his acting secret, it's marathon running. And Barbara Todd Lehman tells us what haircutting trick Ice Cube got wrong in Barbershop The Next Cut. That's all in this week's episode of Skillset. Ratchet and Clank is an animated movie about two space heroes, a cat-like mechanic named Ratchet and his robot buddy Clank, who team up to save the galaxy from a bunch of bad guys. Maybe you've heard of them, because over 14 years, they've made 14 best-selling video games. And all that time, the same two actors have provided the voices of Ratchet and Clank. But this new movie, their first movie, is different. I mean, for one, there is a lot more talking. So in making the jump from a game screen to the big screen, I wanted to know what these actors learned about these characters, and what they learned about themselves. So let's meet James Arnold Taylor, who plays Ratchet, and David Kay, who plays Clank. When you watch Ratchet and Clank, it is going back to the very first game. You're fighting the same bad guy you're, who's battling with the same evil plan. But there was there were things about your characters I didn't know. Like I did not know that Ratchet was an orphan. And then you get to see yeah. him as a gap-toothed child. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, pretty <laughs> cool actually. You know, um, he's uh, he's a Lombax. He's the only Lombax now. All the Lombaxes are gone, and so uh, uh, it's a fun kind of narrative to tell and to be able to do that character. I certainly relate to him in many ways. How so? Um, I just found out just four years ago who my real father was. I never actually knew uh, my real father. And, uh, and then the crazy part of that story is he actually uh, made his living with his voice. He worked in radio and TV and hosted things and did exactly what I do. You'd never met and yet somehow through yeah. DNA you and your father yeah. gravitated to the same not very common job? Yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah, specific to voice, that's kind of the crazy part because, you know, most people in Hollywood go, oh, I'm going to be on camera. I'm going to be beautiful. <laughs> and I went, I want to do voices. So, yeah, yeah. And then you go back and you're playing this character who's an orphan who doesn't know his... I mean, does that mean that these, these characters over time are getting richer for you? I think so. I mean, David, you've said this before, too. Uh, the soul of Clank, I mean, it's, he's a robot, but he's deep. Yeah, they, 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 all these characters that we do are a part of us. You know, his background, he told me that story a week ago and I was blown away. 
because we came from similar backgrounds. My background is, is partly Welsh, and of course, when I met a lot of the relatives and I was over there in my stag in, in, in Cardiff, and, and uh, they all say, well, you will speak, use your voice now because you're Welsh, and that is your data, because they're big singers over there, they use their voice, yeah. and, and they're, it's all about that. And my grandmother always says, is the reason you're doing this is because of your Welsh heritage. And I think you kind of wonder, yeah. when we were talking about your father and your yeah. heritage, like how that is in all of us. So yeah, I guess. Yeah, it is, yeah, it's very true. Yeah, I would love to have heard his voice. That's the only thing. I haven't been able to find any like old radio programs or anything of his voice yet, but uh, I would love to hear it. Now, James, your ratchet voice is very similar to your real voice. Yeah. Have you ever been recognized by your voice? I have uh, once or twice. I was actually, uh, recently, we were in a uh, restaurant and I was talking to the gal behind the counter and she goes, are you a voice actor? And I was like, first off, I'm like going, okay, because nobody knows even just the term voice actor, you know, I thought, <laughs> I thought so she's got to be like a film student or something. I said, yes, I am. And she's like, yeah, I know your voice. I know you. And so I was like, oh, that was, that was really cool because most of the time it's not this voice. People would know me from, you know, like I say, Frank Flintstone or Obi-Wan Kenobi or, uh, or Johnny Test, who's 11 years old, kind of obnoxious. This, you know, it's like that's, you know, the day in, day out of it. Or the big announcer on Fox, The Simpsons, coming up next, you know, that kind of stuff. When you do a film, also when you get that detailed look and you can zoom into their faces, you can see their ears move, you can see them make expressions yeah. that they couldn't necessarily do in the game. And so they're almost visually able to carry more emotion. So how does that change the performances that you deliver? Yeah, it does. And in fact, you know, I mean, having said that, I mean, it's, it's true. There is a lot of really kind of nice touching moments in the movie, which we played around with in the games in the past, but more so even with Clank. And I was like you were saying, it kind of even choked you up being able to kind of be able to do that. But yeah. Ratchet has these wonderful, I don't know, you know, a lot of times I look at my stuff and I go, okay, yeah, I could have done this, I could have done that. I watch this and I thought, oh, I like these guys, you know, and I, I think it's because there was a, a really neat transition that they did and they, they gave more emotion to them. Yeah, there's a lot of, there's nuance as well um, that you can play around with more when you're doing a film. There's a little more, a little more uh, it's not sort of a, a, you know, scene to scene to scene. There's, yeah. a, through, there's a through line in a story that's happening and um, you can take a moment and maybe be a little choked up. You know, yeah, get softer there. than you normally softer, would. Yeah, you, know, you, can, you can play around with uh, the robot sort of developing a, a soul of some kind or a little beating heart. Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot less, uh, 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 <laughs> which <laughs> thank goodness. Yeah, you spend you know a good portion. So, like when you track the game, it takes longer to track a game than it did the movie. Um, and then usually at the end of each session, to save your voice, they have you do that. But although, does Clank have to do a lot of yelling and stuff? Well, more like uh, falling. Okay, uh, he's falling. Give me three of those. Yeah. You go, ah, ah, ah. I don't know how he falls. I mean, because he's robots. Because so Ratchet is all, whoa! You know, yeah. it's big. It's yeah. a lot of that stuff. Yeah. So he's always kind of screaming and yelling. Is there a lot of, look out! Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's, clank, look out! Watch Ratchet, it! Ratchet, yeah. quickly! <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah you know. So do you think the worlds of video games and movies are getting closer together? Where do you see this I going? I certainly do, yeah. I mean, I think over the last 10 years, you've seen such a, a convergence of them both. And the video game industry is bigger than the movie industry now by a couple billion dollars. I mean, that's pretty telling. They, they're learning how to tell stories that are as cin cinematic as film. Film has still got a lot on them, though, I think, in that uh, I, I, I hope this movie does a good job of combining them two. I, I think it does. I, I, you know, I know I can't be biased or you know unbiased. Yeah, it, it, they, I mean it's all heading that way. It's 
immersing oneself in in entertainment. Or there's a great line from uh, the play and the movie. Uh, um, what was the one um, that this? It's about a play within a play. Uh, noises, noises off. off yeah. Noises off. Yeah. I was going to say noises off. Yeah. But there's a line in there that uh, the director uh, says that. Uh, I prefer to be taken out of myself and not put back in, you know, uh, and that's what entertainment now is, is you can find in the games and the movies and, and soon it'll be, you know, the 3D all encompassing, the, the, you know, it, that is what it is, it's, it's getting out of reality and putting yourself into something else, um, another reality. It's I think cool. the cool thing about this one, and this is not just a shameless plug for the film, so many, like, you know, I get screeners every year, you know, the Screen Actors Guild. Every movie this year was based on a true story, <laughs> the real life story, experience. And I'm thinking, I go to the movies so I can escape the real life. And what I love about this is it's just a good old fashioned movie, you know, eat some popcorn, take the family and just escape instead of going, oh yeah, it's all very depressing. Yeah. It? You know, it's well, it's like the, the Donald Fontaine invented that to in a world. The yeah. reason he used that because it takes you out of your world and into this world. Yeah. That's what that was about. You know, <laughs> not anymore. Not anymore. Yeah. Oh, I love that. And also, I guess just the last question. It seems to me from the outside that starting with maybe say Aladdin and that or Shrek, yeah. mm -hmm. the there became more of a trend of like casting recognizable actors as cartoon voices. Yes. How is that sort of work different from the work that you guys do? Well, it's. You know, I mean, uh, that whole thing has changed. And Robin Williams was fantastic. He was a natural to do voiceover. Uh, that's not always the case in Hollywood. The funny thing is, is for me, I, I think David does a bit of this as well. I do a lot of voice doubling. So if celebrities aren't available. So if Johnny Depp isn't able to do his voice one day, I come in and fill in for him. Or, or uh, Jay Baruchel isn't there, so I do his. Or, uh, or Jack Nicholson. I had to do, I had to clean up some dialogue for him. Or... <laughs> Michael J. Fox or David Spade or Christopher Walken, you, 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 you do their voice. <laughs> so the thing is, is even if they get the movie, we then get the TV show version of it or whatever and get to fill in for them. So we fill in a lot, but you have to match their acting beats. And what I find a lot of times, this is certainly not a, uh, a knock on Hollywood, is I know they need the names. You know, we have names in our film. We were very fortunate to get to keep our roles. I've done several films and I've been lucky enough to not be replaced in any of them. But what happens is, what Hollywood needs to realize is, while they may not know who we are, their kids know who we are because their kids play the games and stuff. And so. I think it's great that this is kind of a, mm -hmm. a first that our names are actually on the poster with Paul Giamatti and Sliced Alone and all that. That's it's pretty cool. Yeah, it is. It is amazing. It's very surreal to me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the only one I do is done, done that is Liam Neeson. That's all. Oh yeah. Yeah. I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want, but we'll find you and I will kill you. And the <laughs> thing with the Clank thing we're in studio. Yeah. T.J. Uh, our writer was. Yes. T.J. He said, "How would Clank do that?" Said, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you want. I have a particular set of skills. I will find you and I will kill you. And I was like, you know, if we could somehow put that in here. Somehow. <laughs> yeah. Um, it is, it, it, it's great. You know who does a really wonderful job on our films is Rosario Dawson. Uh, she you know, is fantastic. Really She's a natural at voiceover. And yeah. you can just tell. You can hear. You, you can hear. From, from our perspective, you can hear. And we've had people come in on sessions before when I was doing Transformers Animated. You know, you look at the breakdown of the, uh, of the characters. You go, "Oh, Weird Al Yankovic. Uh, they're going to get someone to sound like Weird Al Yankovic. That's kind of cool." And you walk in, "Oh, hey, hey it's Weird, Weird Al. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. They live here. I forgot." So yeah. they will bring people in. Some people were more than comfortable. 
uh, and they were they just you know the other people were just, they would talk way back from the mic back here and they have to stop down and or they wear loud clothing not realizing that yeah there's or a they whole... look at you the whole time see we're looking at our scripts we're looking straight ahead and just acting it and then you yeah. feel their presence they're like, looking they're at like you. right yeah. on you, you, you like, kind of look over and go he's looking at me for he's like, <laughs> I'm doing that look that I'm famous for it doesn't work here. Mark Hamill is a great uh, example of somebody that's made the natural transition or Tom Wilson who's a dear friend of mine who was uh, in Back to the Future and Stuff. These guys, they get it and they've made the transition, but not everybody can. Yeah. Well, guys, this has been so much fun. Thank oh, you. For thank it. you. Yeah, thank you. It's been great. I only have one thank voice. You. I only have one But see, you have a very nice resonant voice, too. For oh, thank you. Voice. Yeah, it's nice and good. I've heard it has that quality of scratching people's brains. What is it? MRSE? Oh, oh scratching people's brains. I like that. It's very good. I just have scratchy. You scratch brains, you make them think. That was James Arnold Taylor and David Kay, the voices of cartoon heroes Ratchet and Clink. Ethan Hawke is a busy actor. Ever since he made his screen debut with movies like The Explorers and Dead Poets Society, he has kept running. If anything, he's gotten faster. This year, Ethan has six movies coming out, including the Chet Baker biopic Born to be Blue and the bloody western In the Valley of Violence, which, by the way, also stars the cutest dog I have ever, 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 ever seen. This month, you can watch Ethan playing a pretentious novelist caught in a love triangle between Greta Gerwig and Julianne Moore in the comedy Maggie's Plan. Between all of this acting, Ethan does a lot of literal running. Last fall, Ethan ran his first marathon. I mean, that sounds hard enough, but is it even harder when you're famous? When you run the New York Marathon, and you're doing it for charity, and you're doing it with your wife, and you're Ethan Hawke, and then you know that the New York Times is going to publish your race results, does that make you nervous? It's a strange thing, but because Dead Poets Society came out when I was 18 years old, I have strangely blinders on. My kids accuse me of this. I have incredible powers of denial that I think are like a self-preservation technique. For example, like we'll go to the Nick game and I'll say, God, that was fun. And my son will say, yeah, except those guys behind us who wouldn't stop talking about you. And it just ruined the whole game for me. And I said, God, I didn't even notice them. And it's not like I didn't notice them. It's that I can kind of tune it out because very young, I think I realized that if you let celebrity isolate your experiences, you're going to stop living. And I, I think because I also wanted to write, I knew that you know, a writer's greatest tool is their experiences. And, what, and if you're, all your experiences are these tiny little issues of celebrity, you're not going to have any, you're not going to have any community that you're a part of. Or they to have write to about. live and learn yeah. and make mistakes. And so I blacked all that kind of thinking out. And in fact, my wife really likes to run. And she had this idea that we would do this together. And I felt pretty sure that something would come up and I wouldn't be able to do it. So I just said yes. And I thought, oh, it's going to happen. I'm going to need to be filming in Istanbul or something, and I won't have to do it. And then but, you're calling up people who work in Istanbul, being like, you got anything? You got to give me a job. <laughs> um, no. And so I, I will say, though, that I think a lot of people's favorite part about running the marathon is feeling the goodwill of others and feeling people cheering them on. And, and it's very powerful to see that. 
when they know your name and know who you are, it, it, was, it had the opposite effect. I, the thing I didn't anticipate that would be hard about the marathon was being recognized. You know, particularly at, at mile 20 when somebody's like, come on, Ethan Hawke, you can do it. And you're like, my legs are about to fall apart and I need not to be recognized right now. Because you start to feel like an animal. You know, you don't feel like a person with logical thinking. Yeah, because um, is this when you're just drenched in sweat and maybe bleeding from places? Yeah, and, and my, what started to happen to me, I had this, uh, I don't know if this is interesting or not, but I made it, I really wanted to finish and I wanted to put no pressure on myself about time, except for the fact that I just wanted average 10 minute miles. That'd be fine. I just, so that's, so there's no shame. That's, that's definitely running it. Do you know the 10 minute mile is fine. But as it was going on and I was doing that, and when I got to the final 10 K, you know, like the last six miles at 20 mile, I had this thing. I thought, well, if I feel good at that point, I'll try to run faster for the last lap and try to do a good time. And I was having a great time. And, um, and then I tried to turn it up a notch in it's like my left hamstring cramped. Then I rubbed that out and then my right hamstring cramped and then my left calf cramped and then my right calf cramped and then my left foot cramped and then my right foot cramped. And I was in so much pain, but I had gone so far that the idea of not finishing felt a catastrophic personal failure. Well, yeah, yeah, I mean, was that in your head? Like, if you limp off into the margins, people are going to be like, Ethan Hawke quit, I saw him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's when you want to be anonymous. Did you ever read that Murakami book, um, What We Think About When We Think About Running, or What We Talk About When We Talk About Running? It's a, it's a riff on the Carver novel. I didn't, but my dad called. was a runner, so it was something I've always... Well, first off, I like your podcast and the idea of your podcast, because my mother used to have this expression that if... Um, to achieve mastery at anything, you have to apprentice three. You, you know, that, that... That it's okay if you fail at a couple things well, no, to become to, to good really, at another thing? Or? Like, to really understand architecture, you need to also try to be a musician and try to work on mechanics and try... Like, I think the basic principle is not to be a one-dimensional person. And that knowing things about more subjects actually makes the thing that you're good at stronger. Meaning for me, uh, or what I took it to mean, is that if I really want to excel at acting, I really need to write, learn about writing and directing and music and all the other aspects that go into a great performance. And so running, in, as somebody who loves all those art forms, the exercise and uh, running has been the only kind of hobby I have. Because it's something, all the other art forms end up turning into something professional. Right. Like, at, you know. But that, running is something that, that you can't fold into a career. Do you listen to music when you run? It depends. You know, like one of my best experiences running is learning the lines to Macbeth. Because I would get radio plays. There's a lot of them out there. You know, you can get Sean Connery playing Macbeth. You can get Ian McKellen. Um, there's so many. And, and so I would just go for a run and I would listen to the play over and over again. And then you kind of start to learn it like you learn a song, which is, you know, you don't ever learn the lyrics to Hey Jude. You just know them. Like, you, how do you know the lyrics to Hey Jude? Well, you just listen to it a lot. And Now, obviously, you still have to learn the lines to Macbeth. It's never that easy but aspects of it become incredibly familiar. And if you inundate yourself with lots of different people's performances, 
you're never going to just start pilfering from Mark Rylance's performance. You, you're just going to start stealing your favorite ideas, and it kind of turns into your own version. Do you have any running injuries? Like, did you ever lose a toenail? I, with both of these, the my second toe, yeah. But, you know, because I wasn't running for speed, you know, you get injured when you really press your body, you know, I think. And to be honest with you, I would love to try that. I would love to try to run the marathon as fast as I could and train a lot harder. But I do worry sometimes about the, that there's only so many miles we all have and that when you run these things, you're burning them out. Like I, I, I don't mind really being a turtle, just kind of going slow for a long time. That was Ethan Hawke, star of the new movie Maggie's Plan, and he's also that guy running down a sidewalk near you. I really loved the new movie Barbershop The Next Cut. It's Ice Cube's third time playing Chicago barber Calvin Palmer Jr., and in this sequel, he is surrounded by a bunch of old and new faces, everyone from Cedric the Entertainer and Eve to Nicki Minaj. We're talking like 10 employees plus their customers. And what this crowded barbershop does is argue about everything. Gentrification, dating, parenthood, nothing is off limits. It got me thinking about the barbershop as the center of the community. So I asked a barber from my community, Todd Lehman of Sweeney Todd's Barbershop here in Los Angeles, to watch the next cut. Here's what he thought. So you've been working here since 98. Have you seen the culture around barbering change at all in in those two decades? Yeah, I have. I've seen it, you know, it's become a lot more of a, it's a lot more popular. I mean, it's become very popular as far as not just more people, like guys getting haircuts coming in, you know, for haircuts or being aware of barbershops, but it's also um, a lot more people becoming barbers. And I would say that's something that's been happening gradually over the, like, probably the last six or seven years. Well, why do you think that is? You know, I... I have a feeling it has a lot to do with um, there seems to be this sense now of people in general wanting to experience something really genuine, uh, something that's been lost through the box stores like the big chains and and sort of reaching out and wanting something, a different experience be it, you know, when they go to a bar they want like a, like a Manhattan the way it should be made or you know, they want, they want all that uh, all those things that they missed out with, you know, in a barbershop, like with the supercuts or something, you know. And I think some of that's uh, sort of, sort of brought on by like, you know, whatever it's things, television shows and movies and things like that. Where now there seems to be like things like, well, like Bordock Empire or Mad Men, brought people's attention to those, you know, the way things used to be. Let I me mean, thinking about how barbering is one of the oldest professions. Right. Because as long as humans have existed, we've had hair and beards. Mm-hmm. Or men have had beards. Women right. have occasionally had Some beards. Some women have beards. Some but women yeah. have beards. <laughs> yeah. But that it's a, it's, it's a function that's always needed to be served. Yeah. That's true. It, 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 well, I mean, I think w- w- with the barbershop, it sort of died away when, you know, I'll say like the late 60s, obviously, you know, guys began, even the older generation, people used to tend to think, well, that was just a young thing. All the young guys were, were, were growing their hair out, but the older guys were too, a little bit, or they were going, you know, that was the late 60s was sort of the, the beginning of the whole unisex thing where 
it started out innocently enough with, uh, like I said, older men, uh, executive types. They wanted their hair, they were starting to get their hair dyed. They wanted, it was this whole thing about youth and everything. So they were going into these sort of a salon slash barbershop where they would dye their hair and walk, get their hair washed and then, you know, styled, blow dried, etc. And then, and then as time wore on, like probably into the early 70s and beyond that, guys were just growing their hair out. I mean, it was across the board, everybody was growing their hair out. So in that way, the barbershop started to sort of die away. If they couldn't keep up with that, if they couldn't adapt, they just simply went away. And I think they probably, probably came back, you know, in the 80s or whatever a little bit. And then really came, now like, I was saying, like in the last probably seven years, it's it's really come back strong. Like the barbershop is suddenly like this. It's like it, everything is old is new again. You know, everybody's they've rediscovered this. Which means there's something perfect about your barbershop in particular, about Sweeney Todd's, because you're here in Los Feliz. This place has been a barbershop for decades. Like right. I mean, since the 50s, you said, or before? Uh, since 47. Since 1947, yes. this place that we're in has been a barbershop in Los Feliz, which is yep. now the perfect neighborhood to have a really cool yeah. retro barbershop when yeah. it necessarily wasn't in, say, like the 70s or 80s. Yeah. Which made me curious how you reacted to you know, the, the plot line in the new barbershop film about gentrification and changing neighborhoods. Yeah, I, I I thought I definitely thought about that. It's a it's like a it's kind of a slippery slope, you know. You um, well, I look at this at, at the movie Barbershop, and I see I see where Calvin's coming from as far as um, something like with gang violence going on all around you every day. That's got to and then now he has a family, has a boy. His his priorities have shifted now. He's a family man. I understand where he would say, I want to get out of this, and you know move to a nice neighborhood and 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 not deal with this anymore I that was one of the things that really I think that was the the thing that really stood out for me in this movie was that that sort of where he's he's got to make that decision or where he actually has made that decision or he thinks he has until the end yeah and what's so interesting about that is everybody else's panic that the shop might move it got me thinking about this idea of a barbershop as a representation of the neighborhood. Can you even move it? And I mean, would the customers even travel farther to be there? Well, that's the th- that's the funny thing about uh, barbershops or barbering. I think, um, like, say, if this were to move, say, to Echo Park down the ways, you know, we would probably lose lose some people, even though it's only what a four or five miles. My last question: From what you saw of. Ice Cube's work as a barber in this film. Would you trust him to cut your hair? I. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, I think I would. I mean, I didn't really see anything. They didn't really hone in on his on his hands. You know, they showed. They I guess they showed the after. Well, when he cuts his son's hair, that 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 sort of stands out. I thought that was well done. You know, I mean, it's yeah. I don't know if this is is a uh, a movie you, that you're going to watch as a tutorial to barbering. Did he seem confident with with razors? Oh yeah, no. I was believe as far as him being as a barber being believable. I, I think he was believable. I think everybody was. Is there uh, like a certain flourish you look for in the way somebody puts someone in a chair or dusts off their neck? Well, there was one thing. I, I didn't mention it. Boy, I didn't. Even, I I guess I get used to seeing this. There is a way that barbers are supposed to put. Traditionally, a barber is supposed to put a chair cloth in a barber shop versus 
somebody in a salon. You're you're in the barber chair right now. I would come to your to your right side. I'd have the chair cloth and I'd go around you. Your head's here. I'd go around you like this. But I noticed what, something he did was he was actually he was behind. Oh, so Ice Ice Cube did it a little wrong. Well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, it's <laughs> it's very common. I mean, you know, it's just whatever. It's Hollywood, you know, and they never get it a hundred percent right. And it's okay. I'm not like, you know, so puritanical about it. You know, like, okay, you know, I can get past that. That was Barber Todd Lehman on Barbershop The Next Cut. I am so glad he could join us for this week's episode of Skillset. And I am so, so glad you could join us too. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Chief Film Critic Amy Nicholson, and if there's a movie question you want answered, tweet me at the Amy Nicholson. And tune in again next week for a new batch of experts, and hopefully a new, new way to look at the movies. This episode of Skillset was produced by Michael Catano and Mukta Mohan for the MTV Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook at MTV News and at MTV Podcasts. You can subscribe to this and other MTV podcasts on iTunes.